If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 uh, once again. Hear the word of God. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covers, coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Amen. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, we do so uh, confident that your word has power to change us. And I pray that uh, we would be changed, that we would uh, grow stronger in our ability to be stewards of all that you have put into our trust. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the dangers that uh, we as Christians can face is to divide between some portion of life and our Christianity. And I think it happens all the time uh, in churches, and it may be tempted to happen in your mind as we're even preaching on this series because many times people think the only thing that's spiritual, you know, are churchy things, going to church, devotions, evangelism. But talking about, you know, economics and politics, uh, surely that cannot be. And uh, I want to remind you once again, Christ claims every square inch of life and he wants to bless us in every square inch of our lives. And so I've been preaching on this series on the Christian and prosperity and recently, we've been looking at one area that could be a stumbling block to prosperity, a hindrance, and it could be a stumbling block really in any area, whether it's uh, prosperity in, in our political endeavors, our emotional life, spiritually, whatever. And I've called that uh, lack of sales resistance. Uh, in this passage that we read, what Satan is doing is he was trying to sell Eve a product, and uh, he was... Uh, uh, banking on her lack of experience, her lack of knowledge, and succeeded in tempting her. The scripture says that she was deceived. Now, your weak point may not be uh, lack of knowledge, naivete. It may be something uh, totally different. But the point is, we need to understand Satan's devices. Paul says, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Eve was. Many times Christians are. And that's why we've been looking at each of these devices. I think you can see the applications in terms of your resistance to sin, but you can see it also in, in a lot of other areas of life. Now, what I want to do today as we review is uh, do it a little bit differently and uh, go through these one at a time, take a, a really fast track through the first five verses, and I'm going to try to reduce all of these uh, tactics that were used by Satan down into one or two words. And hopefully by condensing it down to its essence, it'll help you to remember them and some of the material that's associated with them. And let's start with verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning, 
and the Septuagint says was more wise. Other translations uh, that are given um, are again wiser or more clever. Uh, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now the key point here is association. Satan is not dumb. He tries to wrap up his package in the best-looking package that he can. Ezekiel tells us the serpent at this point, uh, what, what, what he was tempted with was the wisest and the most beautiful creature. And so there's association that he's trying to bring in his mind. The second um, uh, uh, key uh, point there is in verse 1. It says, And he said to the woman, it's direct appeal. Satan is not interested in going through Adam and having Adam maybe change his words, dilute the impact that his words might have. And so there is a direct appeal bypassing the authority structure. Third key point is isolation. I'm not saying by isolation that Adam and Eve were not together. In fact, I'm convinced from verse 6 they were both there present. But what I'm talking about is the very common high-pressure sales tactic where you keep the husband and wife together in the room and you don't leave the room where they can be uh, they can be together to talk through their decision. You want to isolate their decision-making from each other so that you're always in the room with them. That's exactly what Satan does uh, here. He wants, he wants uh, them to be making a decision without being able to talk it together uh, with each other. Uh, then the next clause, has God indeed said? Fourth key, um, oh yes, I've missed the negative advertising in verse 1 where he rephrases God's words and puts them into the worst possible light. The fifth point, uh, has God said, is challenging loyalties. He is not asking a question so that he can gain some information. Satan doesn't need information. He's baiting them. And uh, he's also uh, challenging their, their lo- loyalties. And whether it's challenging it to switch from Coca-Cola to Pepsi or uh, God as teacher to Satan as teacher... Um, challenging loyalty is a very important one. Sixth one, that's up there, baiting into conversation. Again, not to gain uh, any, any new information there. Okay, the next one on the sheet, number seven. Okay, exploiting vulnerability. Uh, in uh, verses two through three, you not only see that he has succeeded in baiting her into conversation, but he has found out what her particular vulnerability may be. Yours may not be uh, lack of experience and lack of knowledge. It may be curiosity. It may be uh, lust. It may be anger. But uh, Satan will try to exploit whatever vulnerabilities that, that you may have. Okay, next one up there. Number eight is downplaying danger. He says you will not surely die. And whether it's a tobacco uh, company or whether it's the uh, medical doctor who's prescribing medicine, it's unlikely they're going to tell you about all of the dangers that are in the small print. And I find it remarkable how freely doctors prescribe medicine without letting people know of the, the number of dangers that are with there. But Satan is going to downplay the risk of the sin that you're tempted with, right? So downplaying danger. Okay, number nine. Inflated promises. You will not surely die. And, of course, that's a, that's a big part of uh, the pressure scheme. They can't back up their inflated promises, but uh, those are a big part of luring people on. Number 10, exploiting ambiguity. We saw that the word die can be interpreted in, in two different ways, and he exploited the ambiguity of those words. And you find this, I gave many illustrations in the uh, advertising realm. Number 11, winning trust. 
Uh, he becomes the consumer advocate, as it were, and uh, wants uh, Eve to trust him, and uh, she ends up doing exactly that. Number 12, insider information. Uh, the whole of verse 5, in fact, let me go ahead and read it. Uh, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's like that hot tip, you know, that the salesman on the phone's giving you about the stock market that's going to be going up through the roof. You know, it's going to double, maybe quadruple in the next three months. You need to get on the stick and get into that. But here it's a hot information, insider information that nobody else knows. He knows about God. What's the next one? Number 13, creating discontent. And that's where we left off from. Basically, he's saying, um, you're being denied something. Here is something that you need. I can provide it for you. He's trying to create discontent in his life. And that brings us up to point number 14. And I've summarized that with the word perseverance. If you look at verse 4, it says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Okay, so the serpent talked. Then the woman said. Then the serpent said. He did not take her no in verse 2 as a final answer, okay? He kept on with her. Now, perseverance is actually a very good and uh, uh, important trait uh, that we need to be pursuing as well, and salespeople need to have that kind of a trait. You know, if the door gets slammed in the face of a salesperson, he needs to persevere. He needs to go down the street and check the next door and the next door and the next door, and eventually the odds are going to indicate he's going to be able to uh, get something. But this is going beyond that. This is the rude salesperson who is going at the same door, and he is not taking no for an answer. Two, three, four no's out of you don't matter. He just continues to pursue and to hound after you. It's the high-pressure uh, salesperson. And I think most of you have experienced that. Uh, they just keep you in conversation until you hang up, or you exasperate them, and finally they, they give up. And I just had this happen to me this past week, and I'm still amazed at how cheerful this guy was in his conversation. Uh, you know, he, he wanted uh, uh, really smooth. I can't even duplicate what he was uh, saying, but I uh, had this really uh, hot lead on this new stock that's going to be going through the roof. I'm not interested, thank you. Well, what kind of stocks are you interested in so that I can tailor my recommendation? Not interested, thank you. And he just cheerfully, as if I was saying yes every time, you know, was going on with this conversation. Now, this does highlight a weakness that Phil Kaiser has, uh, and that is uh, uh, the, the, the principle we looked at before of just not wanting to be rude. And uh, so I want to look at what's the uh, antidote uh, to this kind of an intrusion. And as you've guessed, it's probably not the way that I do it. I usually wait to hang up when there's a pause. You know, where it's, it's something that just feels like natural. Okay, now's the time that I can hang up. And it's usually after two or three or four no's <laughs> that happen. So don't do it like Phil Kaiser. You probably ought to do it like Kathy Kaiser. She's got this down slick. i just amazed at her. It's like, no, I'm not interested, thank you. And as she says to you, she hangs up, and the guy hasn't stopped talking, hasn't taken a breath. You know, I'm waiting for the breath, and uh, she's got it down pat. And you know why her way is much better than my way is because she's saved this salesman a whole minute that he can spend on somebody else. She's not going to buy anyway, right? So she's being nice to the salesman. I'm being a jerk because I'm waiting and waiting to hang up. And he said, well, I wasted two minutes on Phil Kaiser. But it's better for uh, do it her way because of it, it's really helping the salesperson. It's also helping you in terms of stewardship of time. And um, 
And uh, when I'm talking about these points, I want you to, to realize I'm talking about the high-pressure salesperson. I'm not talking about the, the salesman who's trying to make an honest living. I've got a soft place in my heart for people like that. It is hard to sell. I was a salesperson. I hated it. I mean, it's just it's really hard to do that. So I'm talking about the person who's got that Machiavellian, uh, you know, manipulative uh, bent. And the question I want to ask is this. Is it okay to be rude with them and to hang up when they won't take no for an answer? Some people feel so guilty uh, over this. Well, let me give you a biblical rationale for rudeness, okay? And actually, it's not rudeness. It's giving a very succinct, honest answer to a rude intrusion of of your time. But they're going to treat you as if you're being rude. You're going to be made to feel guilty like you're being rude. So we might as well just call it rudeness, okay? And say, okay, there's a biblical justification for rudeness. Turn with me, if you would, to first, uh, Second John. Second John. It's the third to last book of the Bible. If you count back from Revelation, Jude, Third John, and Second John. And I want to start it in context in verse seven. <clears throat> Second John. Did I say Third John? Second John. Okay, I said it right. Second John, verse seven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. And let me just stop there and point out that this salesperson is unethical in the way in which he's doing things. He's trying to deceive. He's trying to manipulate. So it says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, I want you to notice that he puts this into economic terms. Just like the salesperson at the store is trying to talk you out of some money, these people are trying to talk you out of some of your prosperity, your spiritual prosperity, the blessings in heaven. All of life is economic. And I think we need to realize this. Hopefully, by the time we're done with this series, you'll realize all of life is economic. Okay? Uh, There are economic decisions that we are making. And here, he is saying that uh, that this person is having an economic loss because of his failure to be rude. We'll get into that in a moment. Um, well, let me read that again, verse 8. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Now, here comes the rudeness. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine... Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, you've got to understand this in the context of the first century. It would have been considered unbelievably rude for John to have said this because there was etiquette about people coming to your house and how you had to treat them. You had to greet them. You had to invite them into your house. And John is basically saying, when this Jehovah Witness comes to your house, don't give him the time of day. Don't invite him into your house. Don't put him up for sure. But don't even say, have a good day. He says, don't greet him. Why? It's an economic reason that he gives. He says, what you are doing by your encouragement of this person is you are helping him to continue to prosper in the things he is doing. You're involved in his evil works, and as a result, you're going to lose some of your spiritual prosperity. Can you see the economic transaction that's going there? I think we need to think through time as a scarce economic resource, and we've got to be wise stewards of how we handle that. Some people say, well, it's free. I've got sales resistance, but is it worth the hour you spent to get that free case of pop, you know, that's being offered by the salesman uh, that is out there? Let me quickly read you some other samples of rudeness in similar situations. 
In Jeremiah 27, there were prophets, diviners, and soothsayers. They're all selling their, their goods, as it were. And here's what God says. Therefore, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, or your soothsayers. He's saying, don't feel like you need to be polite. When they start talking to you, just walk on by, hang up, ignore them. Don't, don't feel like you have to be polite. And so there is a place for ignoring rudeness. And as I mentioned, it's not really rudeness on your part. They're imposing their rudeness. You're giving them a very succinct, honest answer. I'm not interested. You're moving on. Um, let me give you, in fact, um, sometime you'll have to ask Matt Bennett for his story uh, of what he and Michelle went through uh, when they were at one of these salespeople. I just couldn't believe the kind of rudeness that they had to endure, but you'll have to ask them. It's kind of a fun story. Let me read you a couple of others. Proverbs 20, verse 19. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. He's saying it's okay to walk away. Now, on the back table, I noticed there's only one copy, but I'll try to get a bunch more later. But there is a, a track that gives 15 principles on how you ought to relate to those who uh, are, are, are apostates, leaving an apostate denomination, but it applies to, uh, to others. Let me read a few of those. He says, avoid them, Romans 16:17. Isn't that rude to avoid them? Well, yeah. From such withdraw yourself. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. And from such people turn away. 2 Timothy 3, 5. Watch out for them. Romans 16, 17 through 18. Expose them. Ephesians 5, 11. Identify them by name. 1 Timothy 1, 20. 2 Timothy 1, 15 and 4, 14. Note that person. Do not keep company with him. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. We are not to keep company with them. And there's a bunch more that are on that sheet. Now, not all of them, I think, equally apply to developing sales resistance, but the point is that Scripture says when people are trying to pressure you into doing something that is wrong, that you ought not to be doing, don't feel like you've got to follow some kind of a social custom. You can ignore the social custom. You can hang up on them. You can walk away. You can ignore them. Don't feel guilty when you do that. It's biblical to do that, okay? And you need to be able to do that if you're going to have sales resistance. Now, like I say, I'm not still really good at that. Uh, I'm getting much, much better than I used to be, but failure to have this kind of rudeness, if you will, or an honest reply and succinct reply to rudeness uh, has gotten me into unnecessary conversations and has gotten me to divulge information to people like, why did I tell that guy that? Uh, and so you've just got to follow the biblical principle on this for those who are Machiavellian in their approach to you. So remember the tactic of perseverance. As long as you stay on the telephone line, that's their invitation to, you know, say you want to talk. They're going to continue with their sales talk. Tactic 15 can be summarized in the word exposure, and it's basically getting people to window shop. Satan would not have as successful of a time if he was to tempt her all the way on the other side of the of the garden much better if he can get her while she's hanging around the tree while she's window shopping at this tree uh, as it were and uh, 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 we hinted at this in tactic see what is it 13 um, that the one of the antidotes to tactic 13 is the opposite of tactic 15 that we should not window shop. So these two uh, points really are tied together. But let me just look at some of the ways in which people try to give you exposure to their product. And I think most of you are familiar with these. 
It can be, uh, you know, the TV and the radio ads. It can be those flyers that are sent into your home, the catalogs that keep coming every two weeks, you know, from computer products. It's amazing the amount of money that they spend on those, um, on those uh, magazines. Uh, it can be inserts in the, in, the, um, in the newspaper. So that's one way. Another way that they do it is through loss leaders. And you probably all know what a loss leader is. In the grocery store, they will have a product that they are selling for way below what they even paid for it. They're going to lose money if that's the only thing that you buy. And some people, that's all they do buy. Uh, they go in there and they buy all these loss leaders. But their hope is when you come in to buy that, you're going to be exposed to all of the neat packaging and all of the neat other things, and you're going to buy sufficient that they're going to make money off of you anyway. So that's one way. Another way is to give you a free gift and say you need to come by the sales office to pick it up. Or some of you have seen free gift to those who test drive. Every person who test drives a car. And while you're test driving the car, they give their sales speech. Uh, so there's many different ways that they, they have of trying to expose you uh, to their uh, product. Uh, some of you told me, you know, so, uh, what was it, two weeks ago, that you've got friends that have strong sales resistance and they go to these, you know, trips in Hawaii in a five-star hotel and everything and they just resist it and go on and have fun. And they've got their strategies. I think, Tom, you were mentioning that they get their sales at the very end of their cruise and then they got to catch their flight so they're not stuck. But uh, some people have their angles on that, but... If you are one of the ones who's always buying things that you later regret that you should not be buying, here's a two-fold response or strategy or antidote that you can follow. First of all, flee from unnecessary exposure. Know your weaknesses and flee from the temptation. Now, catalogs serve a wonderful purpose, and uh, you know, I praise the Lord for, for catalogs, but some people find those as a tremendous weakness and during their times when they're bored nothing to do they're flipping through the catalogs daydreaming as to what they can purchase and maybe the the wife at home maybe the husband you know with with uh you know some of the different car things that he wants to buy uh, don't window shop don't stand under the tree of your particular temptation that you know is going to make you fall in fact failing to immediately flee has gotten many a man into trouble with uh, pornography uh, both on the net as well as on, uh, you know, in the motel rooms where he thinks, well, I'm just going to watch the news. And you flip on the news, but you've got to flip the channels to get to the news and you see something and it hooks you and, and, and you're into watching something that you didn't want to watch. The Bible says flee also youthful lusts, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Now, if Pastor Timothy was admonished to flee, don't you think you don't need to flee, Okay. If Pastor Timothy was admonished to flee, we, we have the same dangers as well. Now, secondly, make a plan when you go shopping and stick with the plan. Now, this is something actually Kathy's had to teach me because I've been the one that was notorious to be sent to the grocery store with a list of two or three things to buy, and I come back with 15. Look at all the great deals I got, dear, and uh, buy far more than was really in the budget. Uh, and again, this is something I've had to uh, learn over time as well. But uh, Proverbs 21, verse 5 says, The plans, and I want you to emphasize that word, the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Spontaneous shopping and spontaneous purchases are being hasty, okay? Uh, which means some of you guys are vulnerable 
If we fail to have plans, a budget is a plan. If we fail to have plans, we're being hasty as well. Some of you are going to be vulnerable to this uh, purchasing bug because you don't have a budget. And you might say, oh, yeah, I've got a budget. It's up here in my head. Well, I doubt that that's a budget up in your head. You maybe have general categories, but you don't know how much exactly you've spent or how much is yet to go on all of the different categories. Uh, unless you've got a mind like my brother Stan, he's got almost a photographic mind when it comes to numbers. And you could ask him exactly to the penny how much he's spent over the past month. He could tell you just like that. Uh, just an amazing mind. I can almost guarantee most of you don't have that. <laughs> and so if you don't have a budget, uh, what you're doing is you're setting yourselves up for hasty purchases, hasty decisions. You're going to feel hungry on the way back from some event and you're going to think, oh, I'm tired. I don't feel like making supper. And you're going to go in and you're going to buy something, you know, from the Burger King. Uh, or you're going to see a TV at Walmart and your eyes are going to bug out because this is such a great deal. I mean, you just can't believe at the clearance aisle that you could get this thing. Now, if you bought that, you know, in order to sell it later on, that might be a different thing. But you're buying a TV. You already got three TVs. You don't need this big screen TV that you're buying, but it's such a good deal. Okay. If it doesn't fit into your budget, no matter how good of a deal it is, don't buy it. Don't get it. Uh, someone will say, what about emergencies? You know, where an appliance breaks down. Well, over time, initially that is very hard, but over time, the wisest thing is to have a savings account that's precisely for that. You're planning for exactly those kinds of emergencies. Now, Scripture does give limited situations where there are, are exceptions, but I think this is the general rule. And these are not Phil Kaiser's words. These are God's words. And he says they apply to absolutely everybody. If you want to prosper you have to plan, and you have to diligently stick to that plan. If you want to remain poor, be hasty in your purchasing decisions. Let me read that, um, that verse again. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Proverbs 21, verse 5. And don't say, like one of my relatives told me, oh, I can't do that. I'm a spontaneous person. It would just go against my personality. You're not a spontaneous person. You're a hasty person. You're failing to plan, and it's going to lead to poverty, and it has in the case of this person. Now, there are other things you can do, but I think if you use those two antidotes together with the other antidotes, you're going to have incredibly strong sales resistance. The 16th tactic is to feed pride. Now, the book of First John um, summarizes what I believe to be three of the key temptations that Satan held before Eve. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We'll look at the other two uh, later, but this one deals with the pride of life. Look at verse 5 and the last part of that verse where he says, And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You might think, come on, there's any advertising is going to you know, pump you up that much. Uh, that is incredible appeal to pride you will be like god but you know any pride amounts to exactly the same danger any amount of pride because what it is is it's independent thinking and independent actions and if you've got independent thinking and actions you are god just by the fact of the independence there and if you've got contradictory actions and then you've got multiple gods you know multiple authorities that keep vacillating back and forth uh in your life um but um we need to uh, be thinking through how Satan here was tempting her to decide for herself, making her feel better or more important than she 
was flattering to the point where you feel like once you, you've gone down this conversation on the telephone and they flattered you and you've not said no about the flatteries, then you almost, you're, you're feeling caught. You don't know much about what they're saying. You feel like, boy, do I dare admit my ignorance now? I have to admit that I've almost, I've almost lied. That is, by the way, a sales tactic that people will use. Try to get you into a corner as if you know things and then once you're down there, you have to either admit that you lied or you need to continue further with, with their purchasing uh, tactic. Jude 1.16 says, They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Okay, maybe the stockbroker who flatters you into thinking you know far more about investments than you really do. Uh, sometimes these advertisements are very uh, subtle. Sometimes uh, I think some of the luxury uh, car ads. Sometimes they're subtle. Sometimes they're more to the point. Some just stroke people with soothing compliments, like, you're such a valued customer. We need to ask these flattering words. What are they doing? Well, they're trying to take advantage of me. What are they after? Uh, here's a couple that are a bit more bold that I found this past week. You get the credit. We do the work. Okay? Boy, that, that, that's a great ad. People like, you know, people to think better of themselves, but they don't know nothing about this. So if this person's doing the work for him, you get the credit, we do the work. That's an appeal to pride. Uh, here's another one. This was out of the Wall Street Journal this past week. The WCI Penthouse Collection. Everything else is beneath you. Uh, wide variety of creativity on these uh, various uh, ads. Uh, some are so crassly stated that you wonder if it could be appealing to anybody at all. I mean, they're just so crass. Let me give you a couple from the Wall Street Journal. Test your market IQ. Then comes a question. If you chose false, congratulations. You're savvy enough to invest in. And then comes the company name. Or here's another very unsubtle one. Direct oceanfront ocean lots. Were you smart enough to have bought an oceanfront lot on Hilton Head, Kiawa, or Amelia Island? Well, here's another opportunity to be very smart. And then comes the ad for that property. Appeals to pride. Some subtle, some not so subtle. Now, what are the antidotes? I think, obviously, the first one is to recognize if you've got pride in your heart to expose that pride, crucify it, and ask God for humility. Now, here's the problem. People have a hard time recognizing their pride. It's sort of like bad breath. Everybody else can tell you've got it, but <laughs> you don't recognize it. Even if your heart is full of that pride, you just don't see the pride that's there. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why this kind of advertising is so, so effective. People don't recognize they have pride. And so appeals to pride can strike them without them knowing why it is that they've been sucked in by that particular appeal. And that's why we need to cry out to God, Lord, show me my pride. Crucify pride within me. You are the giver of humility. Give to me a humility. So that, that first key uh, antidote is to begin to recognize pride within you and there's homework that you can do to, to be able to do that remind yourself as jude does flattery is for the purpose of taking advantage i read that earlier they mouth great swelling words flattering people to gain advantage second write down on a piece of paper what the specific reasons are you can do that even on the fly in the store what are the specific reasons why i'm buying this product sometimes just objectifying it by having it on paper can reveal I've got wrong motives in wanting this. Or you could tell another person. Actually, you don't even have to tell the other person. Sometimes you can just think about telling that other person about what you're wanting to purchase 
And you're going to think, oh, they're going to think I'm very prideful. Why are they going to think I'm prideful? Well, maybe there's pride in my heart, okay? So you're trying in different ways to expose that. And once you become humble, these ads are going to have zero appeal to you. In fact, they're going to seem stupid, many of them. You're going to see right through them. They will not uh, lure you. But pride can be a very, very powerful lure, just as it was for Satan, uh, by Satan for Eve. Seventeenth tactic can be summarized in two words, redefine need. Take a look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now I'm just going to emphasize the word food. Food is a basic need of life, right? Yes and no. It is a basic need of life. You've got to have food in order to survive but eve is already admitted in verse 2 she's got all the food she could possibly use in the rest of the garden so she doesn't need this particular uh, food that's here but food is something that we would have to define yes is is a need ordinarily first timothy 6 8 having food and clothing with these we shall be content and scripture lists out a few uh, other needs but i think most of the things we call needs are not needs at all they may be economic trade-offs there may be a need if I'm going to stay at the same economic level, but that's a different issue. Here's a cigarette ad. Everyone needs a little comfort. Everyone needs a little comfort. Or you've seen ads that use the word essential, indispensable, or you have the right to something. It's all really amounting to the same thing. It's redefining need. And I suspect that if all of us were to take the things that we say I need and we were to substitute the words, I want, <laughs> or I desire, I wouldn't be surprised if 90% of the things we say I need really, you know, could be I want, I desire. They're really not, uh, they're not a need. Now, here's the three antidotes to this tactic, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. Distinguish in your own mind between a need and a want. Secondly, ask if this need can be met in other ways better. Uh, Eve could have found the need for food met elsewhere in the garden. And then thirdly, even if it is a desire, even if it is a want, and it's not a need, it may be perfectly legitimate. Ask yourself, will this contribute or take away from my stewardship ability before the Lord? Will it help or will it hinder? So those three questions there, I think, can help as an antidote. The last tactic that I want to look at today, number 18, is exploiting hungers. Uh, that same sentence again verse 6 so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food now god made man to have basic hungers hunger for food being one of those and i don't think i need to elaborate too much on this point either uh there is a rationale for why food ladies are stationed to hand out food in the grocery stores at the times that they are there's a statistical relationship between the time of day that people shop and how much food they buy at the grocery store there's a statistical relationship between adultery and whether a person is satisfied emotionally and physically uh, and god gives the antidote first corinthians 7 says do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control now, that advice can go to all other areas of hunger. Many financial counselors recommend when you're shopping, don't shop on a hungry stomach. Because you shop on a hungry stomach, the tendency is for that hunger 
to find an, an appealing attraction anywhere in the store. You know, the Twinkies look good even. Candy bar, everything looks good if it's packaged right and if it's advertised right in the store. So they say, don't shop on a hungry stomach because if you do, you're going to buy a whole lot more unless you've got just incredible sales resistance. Um, <clears throat> now, a person who is an ascetic, you're familiar with ascetics? They were in the early church. They were people who felt it was wrong to enjoy God's good gifts and they felt they had to punish and subject their body to misery and they didn't sleep and they didn't... Uh, they took away a lot of the pleasures of life. They were set up, for, ironically, for temptation much more than the people who said, Lord, I receive gratefully from your hand the good gifts of life. I'm going to enjoy them to your glory. And when I am hungry, I'm going to seek to be on guard and to look to you. But the ultimate antidote is to find contentment in God and to have a constant awareness of and a joy in God's presence. Uh, when God's presence grips your heart, it's going to be a whole lot harder for other things to take his place. Uh, when the joy of the Lord is your strength, you're going to be much less likely to find happiness elsewhere. And we're going to sing a song now, a new hymn, which speaks of, of our desire for God's presence in absolutely everything in our lives and relating everything as a stewardship trust to God. When we have that perspective, again, it's an undergirding uh, help in resisting uh, the sales illegitimate sales that are being foisted off on us. Before we sing that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the uh, words of wisdom that we find uh, in the Bible that uh, direct our lives. Father, you describe to a T the way in which all of life works, and we just love you for it. We thank you for the word, which is a light to our path. And I pray that we would be skilled at using that light and uh, that we would become better stewards as a result of understanding it. And I pray as we sing now in response to uh, this preaching of the word that you would help our hearts to be gripped by you. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>